Renewable fuel is nothing new. More than two decades of innovation in renewables power every drop of Neste Mine, the first of its kind to be top-tier certified, reducing GHG emissions with a fuel made from 100% renewable raw materials. So if you're ready for a way forward, we'll lead the way. Run on Neste Mai Renewable Diesel. Welcome to Drilling Deep. I'm your host, John Kingston. Happy Thanksgiving to all who celebrate. And by the way, who doesn't celebrate Thanksgiving? I had a boss in the UK once, and when he first started managing Americans, he just did not understand Thanksgiving at all. He thought it was sort of a stupid holiday. And one year, he pretty much ruined the day of a colleague of mine by calling him something like five times on Thanksgiving on stuff that could wait just so he could show his unhappiness with the holiday. He eventually got the message, don't mess with Thanksgiving. We drill deep here on Drilling Deep because you don't get oil and or diesel without drilling for it. And if you're going to drill, you might as well drill deep. That's why we call the show Drilling Deep. Our guests this week are two executives from Wabash, from trailer supplier Wabash. The trailer market gets overlooked, but a lot in trucking. But the fact is, let's face it, you're not going to move much freight if you don't have a trailer. Wabash has begun a new partnership initiative, and they will be here in a few minutes to talk about it. It's a good thing this podcast is dropping early due to Thanksgiving, because it gives me a few days before anything I say here can't be, can be proven to be totally wrong. I say that because next week, the OPEC Plus Group will meet in Vienna to plot out their strategy for next year. That meeting was supposed to start on Sunday, then it got pushed to Thursday, that could be significant. We'll talk about that in a minute. Before we go further, let's define what we're talking about here. OPEC is the longstanding group of oil exporters with its core in the Middle East. OPEC plus is OPEC plus a large group of oil exporters who are not in OPEC, but who have aligned with OPEC in order to retain restrain production. Its most important member is Russia. Just a few months ago, the assumption was that we'd be uh, that we'd be closing out this year with a Brent price of $100 per barrel. OPEC Plus agreed to cut 1.16 million barrels per day in May. Saudi Arabia added another million barrel per day cut in July on top of that. And by the end of September, we were only four to five dollars away from $100 Brent. Brent is the world's crude benchmark. But a funny thing happened then. One that, if you know economics, shouldn't really have been all that odd. The higher prices started incentivizing more production. Right here in the U.S., over the last few months, production of crude oil has increased by a whopping 1 million barrels per day. When analysts talk about the non-OPEC or OPEC-plus countries that have had big increases recently, they always cite uh, Iran as a, as a member of OPEC-plus. But then a couple of countries are not in either of them that have had a lot of production increases are Guyana and Brazil. And within OPEC itself, like I said, Iran has had a significant increase in production. The result has been a fairly steady decline in oil prices as those new supplies have offset the impact of the OPEC plus cuts and the Saudi cuts as well. Uh, 
Brent has been below $80 recently. A couple of times it's been below 80 and more recently it's been a little bit above 80, but figure about $80 per barrel is where we're at now. So here's the problem that OPEC plus faces. And if you're a transportation company, it most definitely is not a problem for you. The International Energy Agency came out recently with its, uh, its monthly report looking into 2024. And the numbers that matter the most are that, that, that it expects world oil production next year to jump to 103.4 million barrels per day from around 101, 101.8 million barrels per day in the fourth quarter of this year. We're obviously in the fourth quarter now. That is a jump of 1.5 million barrels per day. But it only sees demand increasing next year by about 900,000 barrels per day after a big jump this year of about 2.4 million barrels per day. Even when that big increase in demand this year, and even with OPEC plus cutting production, 2024 is setting up to be a big problem for the world's oil producers. Supply is simply increasing too fast, given that the relative the relatively tepid projections, the, the relatively tepid projection of increase in demand. And even with that supply uh, restraint this year and in OPEC plus and a big increase in demand, $100 Brent just seems like a pipe dream at this point. So what might OPEC plus do next week? If you listen to this after the meeting is held, you can laugh out loud. That's all the things I got wrong. They could simply roll over the existing cuts. If there is a consensus right now in the market, it's that they will do that. The group could also have implement bigger cuts. But given the fact that countries that are part of the deal are starting to produce above their quotas, that might be tough to implement. The Saudis alone could cut further. That would put their production below 9 million barrels a day. And that is generally seen as a figure that they do not want to drop under. Or, and here's what the real conspiracy theorists are saying, the Saudis could try to punish all the new production in the world by increasing their own production and tanking the price. That would make a lot of this production, a lot of this new production, uh, uneconomic. They've done that before at times, but and they may not do it this time, but it's kind of fun to speculate, isn't it? The fact that the meeting got pushed back a few days is, I think, significant. It could be a sign that the pre-meeting discussions are not going well. A lot of times they like to go into these meetings with an agreement in hand. Basically, they they finish 90% of the agreement they just have a few things to work on after that, that they could not get this meeting off the ground on Sunday and need to push it four days hence is a sign, I think, I think really everybody thinks that they are not in agreement on what to do next. And this could be very interesting. The world's oil consumers here at Thanksgiving should be thankful that like the oil industries of a lot of countries, the U.S. being at the top of that, has given this world a lot more supply. Just when everybody figured we were going higher on oil prices, more supply raised its head and forced the price down. We'll see next week how some of the major producers of the world react to that. This message comes from Neste Mai Renewable Diesel, approved by leading manufacturers and the first fuel of its kind to be top-tier certified, made from 100% renewable raw materials. Make the switch by visiting nestemai.com. Going to move on here now on drilling deep. You know, we talk about trucking markets all the time at freight waves in general, drilling deep in particular. And today we're going to talk about the back half of what's rolling on down the road, the trailer. With us today is Richard Mancia. He's the vice president of global procurement at giant trailer manufacturer and supplier Wabash. 
uh, he will talk about our recent partnership that the company has uh, has signed with a, with a couple of shippers. And we're also going to be joined by Tim Greasegrabber. He's vice president of sales at Wabash. So, guys, welcome to Drilling Deep. Yeah, thanks, John. Thanks for having us. Good to be here. I think the best thing to do is for you to, because what really caught my eye when I got the press release from you, you know, and why it's not just another release, because I get lots of them, is the nature of these partnerships. Like, what is the difference between just leasing a trailer or lots of trailers to a company and engaging in a partnership? How is it different? Yeah, so on the on the lease versus buy um, aspect of things, so I, you know, I think there's a couple of ways we think about it. So your question, leasing versus buying, typically there's a couple of ways I'll answer that. One is if you're a large asset-based company um, that typically buys your trailers, uh, those companies are typically using leasing as a way to supplement uh, their capacity, either due to production timing. That could be a cause. It could be that they have some CapEx restrictions where they're not able to actually purchase the trailer. So they're kind of supplementing their fleet. So that's one aspect. And then another one, another way to think about it, however, is there's a lot of non-asset based uh, companies out there that if you are approaching a large shipper, you need a drop trailer solution to participate in those. So that some of those non-asset based companies, as they try to uh, participate in, in those RFPs, that's where they're starting to get into that leasing aspect of things. So when you talk about a non-asset based company, are we mostly talking about brokers or is that too too much of a generalization? It falls into that. That's right. Okay. So, so in this in this partnership that you talk about, uh, are the end users buying the buying the trailers or are they leasing the trailers? From a customer perspective, there's they're either buying or leasing. So when um, so when we're looking at like a customer long term agreement, um, the, the big thing that we're looking for is, you know. First, we start with kind of our portfolio. So who's going to be the company that's going to be the leader in five years? And then, you know, then the type of purchasing that they make, are they leasing? Are they buying? It, it's kind of up to the to the company. The tenants of the long-term agreement remain the same, whether they're leasing or buying. It's just kind of more of a financial decision at that point. Okay, but let's, let's talk about not so much leasing versus buying, unless that's at the core of it. But let's talk about being a partner okay, versus just being a customer. So let's say I'm a long-term customer of Wabash and I've been leasing or buying trailers from you for 10 years. You say to me, I want, I want to engage in a partnership with you. I think you said you have four of them out now. How different then is the relationship under a partnership than it is what, was, what it replaced? Yeah, Richard, do you want to dive into kind of how we think about, yeah? Yeah. Let me step in there and just talk about what we're doing on the supply side. So first, when you think about strategic partnerships, yes, it's it's mutual value. We're sharing knowledge, we're sharing technology, but what we're doing on the supply side is relatively unique where we're introducing relational agreements. And yes, relational agreements is a type of LTA. It's going longer, but it focuses primarily on the relationship. So we're in a standard agreement, it's rigid, it's focusing more on terms and condition and protecting each organization from risk. In relational agreements, it's not about power and leverage and shifting risk to the other party. It's about a shift in mindset and behavior and how we're dealing with our suppliers. And so it's highly collaborative. It's a partnership where we're creating value over a longer period of time 
And we're jointly developing a framework that's flexible to ensure our interests, as well as our suppliers' interests, are continuously aligned over time as our business needs change. So when you made the announcement, the one that caught my eye, it was with a company called Rockland Flooring, which I guess makes flooring. Um, talk a little bit about how that went from a customer relationship. I hate to say standard customer relationship, but you know what yeah, I'm talking had, about. We've had to a, a partnership. How did you get relationship from one to bringing them in on this sort of higher level? Over that time, we've been able to build a level of trust and transparency. And when you couple that with going longer on the commitment side and the agreement, it results in a greater investment in technology and innovation. We're getting better quality more capacity, cost management, and ultimately this all benefits our customers. Now, uh, let me ask you, are the trailers, Tim, first of all, what, what is the size of the fleet, the fleet that side? you supply them with? Yeah, I, I think one thing, John, you know, as, so you got Richard and me. So I, I represent the sales side, right? Customers, R Richard represents the supplier side. And one of the things that, and just, I, I, I'm not going to directly answer that question because Rockland's more on the supply side of things. But the what, one of the things we've tried to do with these long-term agreements is if you start to think about a customer long-term agreement and then a supplier long-term agreement, what Richard and I are trying to do is how do you eventually connect those things through a, uh, from planning perspective. So, um, you know, a, a lot of the supplier ones then that Richard can talk to a better than I can started with, um, you know, what could we, how could we change the mindset if we're thinking more in five to 10 year increments? And then from a customer standpoint, we started that process later, um, probably two years ago, we really started to kind of actually formalize how we think about long-term agreements with customers. And now we're at this stage about how do we, how can we integrate from a customer all the way through to a supplier? So um, ultimately, um, Rockland uh, being a supplier, we, we, um, we're trying to think through how can we leverage that and kind of from a supplier standpoint to build longer term agreements with customers. So really trying to bridge that, I guess, is how we're thinking about it. All right. Let's do some definitions because I'm a little confused here. You know, when I hear supplier, when I, first of all, when I hear the name of like Rockland Flooring, I assume that they're a manufacturer of flooring materials and they need trailers to move their product to market. You're just defining them as a supplier. In Wabash world, what is a supplier? The supplier is a company we're going to be procuring goods or services to help manufacture our products that we then uh, turn sell to our customers. I see. So they supply they supply materials to you uh, for you to build your fifty three foot That's trailers right. and any other type of size trailers, correct? Correct. Yeah. I see. Which That's is why right, you're John. here because you're the head of procurement. Okay. Then talk a little bit about then about the um the uh, the the relationships the uh the partnerships that go with a with a customer somebody who wants the trailer to move their own product to market sure yeah so a couple of things on how we think about it. so we have a uh, a few different uh, channels that we sell to we have what are what's called our direct portfolio of of customers so they they're your Fortune 100 companies that you would think of that are larger fleets. And then we also have a dealer channel as well that typically are selling to small to mid-sized fleets. So that's from a customer standpoint, that's that's typically who we're talking about when we're talking about just uh, from a van perspective. 
Now, when we get into like a um, look at that direct portfolio and we start to look at the companies that are in there and who do we think is going to be the innovative leader in five years, that's kind of how we start to think about strategic portfolio planning. Um, and what we'll do, uh, quite honestly, we don't force LTAs on customers because, uh, well, we can't. But the other piece is we start with the socialization of it. So we'll, we'll say, hey, we, we've had a long-term partnership. We think if we think outside of these one-year increments and start thinking in the five-year increments, what can we do differently? So then that starts to get you thinking differently about uh, perhaps advanced uh, R&D or how we even marshal resources to support them. Like we, we might uh, put maybe folks on site at the customer. Um, there might be different things that we do there. Um, just getting outside of that one year cycle type of thinking into more of a five year kind of starts to open up your thinking. Now this takes discipline too, because um, you know, part, part of the tenants that we have over long-term agreements is we need senior leadership alignment. Um, it's not just a salesperson walking in anymore. It, it's, it's more strategic account management and it's that, uh, it's that orchestration of the resources uh, that Wabrash can bring to the table. And then the customer has to bring the same level of resources to kind of really match that. So, um, and that discipline, that's QBRs, that semi-annual alignment, it's making sure the right players are in the room at the right time. It's not something that is for the faint of heart. It actually requires effort from, to, to really pull these off in the right way. So, um, so anyway, um, th that's kind of how we think about that portfolio and how we eventually evolve it into a long-term agreement. Um, so hopefully that helps. How long is the process by signing these people up? And you, you indicated you, you go to them and say, hey, look, we can take this relationship up from an annual type of thing to a more longer-term relationship. You mentioned five years. Maybe that's standard. Um, how long does the, the convincing process take? Yeah, um, it's been as short as one year and as long as two and a half years. Um, so the cycle can get pretty long. Um, it uh, And Richard, I don't know if you want to answer on the supply side, kind of how long those have taken. But customer side, it's been anywhere from one year to two and a half years to really start to, yeah, takes a while. It goes from socialization of the the concept. And typically people say, yeah, that sounds good. Like, I, I like the feel of that right um and and then it takes a it takes a while to kind of pull in the right um the right players sometimes it evolves um it's not just like an equipment buyer sometimes it starts to evolve maybe into their sales team on how we need to think about things so it takes more people uh to make this work and that's what starts to take longer uh so depending on the complexity of the organization it can it can vary outside of the fact that thing oh i'm yeah, sorry go ahead the supply Richard. Go ahead. side it takes it on the supply side, it takes about 12 to 18 months as well. These are complex agreements, uh, so very similar to what Tim described there on the customer right, so side. Outside of the fact that things just go slowly in general, <laughs> things never go as fast as anybody wants them to, uh, what are some of the kind of pain points or resistant points that you have to persuade a company to overcome to enter into one of these relationships? On the, on the supply side, it's not so much about persuasion. Both parties do want to engage in this level of partnership, but it's just breaking the traditional norms of um, trying to protect your own party of risk. And you know, very similar, like a term and condition, like termination for convenience. And having these standard T's and C's that we're just really accustomed to. And when you move towards a relational agreement on the supply side, 
you're, you're breaking down those walls and you're shifting away from that type of power, that type of protection. And you're moving now towards true partnership and trust and that both parties are going to work together to resolve issues and create value. How many, maybe you can tell me now, give me some indication. These discussions obviously are, again, we've shown that they're not short in duration. I'm sure they're complex. How many would you be having, let's say right now, that might lead to a long-term deal? I mean, you can only do so many. Uh, you just, you know, your, your, your plate gets rather full. Yeah, you can only do so many. And we were very thoughtful and deliberate on how many we want to execute. So we're working on a handful at, at the moment, but um, don't want to quote a specific number, but we're working on a handful of discussions with- That would be the same on the customer side. Right. Yep. Uh, how with the, the freight recession, how has your progress changed? Has that made an impact? I mean, this is a, a long-term deal. It's the kind of thing that takes vision that goes out several years, maybe a short-term bunch of headwinds in uh, the freight market might not be an issue or, or is it, a, is it an issue? Um, it, it, it hasn't really impacted our approach on it. Um, certainly um, the customer's lens on it can change. Like, are, are they more willing to move quicker in a slower time or not? You know, so it, it kind of depends on the customer. If it's the right customer though, which we spend a lot of time <clears throat> focusing on who is the right who is the right customer for these? Like it's something we talk about. Um, it, the, they're going to see through a downtrend or an uptrend. I mean, they're going to, and so it, it doesn't slow down from that aspect of things. But um, yeah, I mean, that's the whole point of it. The whole point of the long-term agreement is to not think in the, the one-year cycles. And so. Right. Let's go back to the uh, buy versus lease discussion. I just, just, Coincidentally, I was at the Rail Trends conference in New York last week, all about railroads, and somebody put up a uh, somebody put up a graphic there about the percent of rail cars that are owned uh, by shippers and the percent that are leased, and it's, it's an enormous number on the on the, the the lease side versus owns. Is that imbalance quite the same in, in trucking? Again, you, you I kind of go back to what you said before that there are companies of very different types of approaches. A three PL is not probably going to buy a lot of trailers, but might lease them. What, what's the kind of split in general? Not necessarily part of your, these, these partnerships, but just in, in general. From a mar- just overall market perspective? Yeah. If you can, I mean, if you can give me a, you're not going to give me very specifics on your, on, on all your details, but you can just kind of give me a, a ballpark number. Um, that's a good question. I, I don't know. If, I don't know if I know that. I, um, in terms of just how many from a, yeah, I'm not sure if I know that answer. Um, okay. Yeah. What's the cost of a new 53 foot trailer today, roughly? Um, it's, um, yeah, that's, I, I don't think I can share that here. Okay. All right. Uh, how about the used market? Or I mean, that's such a wide open market. Do you have any numbers there? Yeah, used, you can go, I mean, you, you can definitely get some good market information there just by going out to different websites, you know, um, and, and looking. I would say the cost of a used trailer for sure has changed quite a bit. It, it, you go back one, two years, it was selling for more in a lot of cases than a new trailer. And now we've seen it kind of come back to a little bit more normal. Um, normal. It, it really depends on the age of the trailer as well. So a trailer that is highly maintained in a seven-year trailer, you can you can sell it 
pretty well. If it's an, if, if you didn't maintain it, then it doesn't go for as much. So there's a lot of factors that go into the used. It, there isn't one number really that kind of, you can say it just depends on age of trailer um, use case. You know, some trailers get really beat up in certain applications, depending on what, what you're hauling. So it can vary significantly. Okay. Richard, you're uh, in, on the procurement side to actually build these trailers. Uh, how bad did it get for you in terms of the supply chain problems let's say coming out of the pandemic in just say 2021 or maybe even into 2022, when did things kind of normalize? It was, uh, it was unprecedented. That's for sure. And things started to normalize probably in, uh, 21 second half of 21 is when things started to get there. I don't know what normal or normalized means today. Uh, so it, we're, we're kind of in a new, definition of what normal is now, but we're still going through constrained challenges on the supply side, but we do have excellent partnerships with our supply base to put us in the best position to get the capacity that we need to fulfill the demand of our customers. Let's let's kind of wrap it up by talking a little more about these partnerships. Do you ever engage in a company in a partnership discussion and then like halfway through you decide that you don't want to do the partnership for whatever reason that you don't think they're a good candidate for it? We haven't experienced that on the supply side. We do a lot of work uh, beforehand to really vet and determine if it's the right fit and the right path forward. There's a lot of back-end work, a lot of upfront work that we do, and preliminary discussions that we have with our suppliers before we enter into the negotiation. Yeah. Very similar on the customer side. We haven't had any one where we've, because to Richard's point, the pre-work on identifying the right company is, is, um, is, the, is an important step. Um, and then, you know, the reason, you know, the question you asked earlier was a good one on how long does it take? Um, the, the reason it takes so long is typically we feel it's the right company to work with. It's just taking longer to work through some of the, um, some of the complexities that come into to navigating it. So it's, we haven't had one where we've kind of backed out because we've already, we've already kind of socialized it. It's just a matter of, feels like it's a matter of when versus, uh, a big shift there away from a company. All right, Tim, I'll let you have the final question. Kind of a, you're in sales. So generally, how would you describe the trailer market right now? Yeah, trailer market right now, um, yeah, I touched on it a little bit earlier. Uh, for 24, probably normalizing the more pre-COVID levels, the, you know, some of the questions you were asking on leasing, because the secular trends still point to an increase in trailer pools. We're, we're still seeing that drop and hook power only solutions. So we feel good about long term demand overall. Um, you know, in general, the reason I can't answer your question on the leasing is because it's on what the market looks like. We've actually seen an increase from our from our customer base of a desire to have more asset light solutions. Uh, like a lease or a trailers as a service or different things. So we've seen an increase in that due to the secular trends of increased trailer pools, drop and hook, power only and those things. So, um, so yeah, definitely more normalizing the pre-COVID, but uh, the, the trends we're seeing long-term are positive. All right, we want to thank Richard Mancia and Tim, Tim Greasegrabber. They are both with Wabash National. They have been talking to us about their partnership program with uh, either on the supply side coming in or the trailers going out the door. So guys, thank you for joining us here today on Drilling Deep. Thanks, John. Thanks for having us. 
Thanks, John. You have been watching Drilling Deep. We are part of the Freight Cash family of podcasts from Freight Waves. You can find us on all the leading podcast platforms. And if you're watching this, if you're seeing our beautiful faces, you are clearly watching on YouTube. I've been your host, John Kingston, and please join us again. This message comes from Neste My Renewable Diesel, a drop-in replacement for fossil fuel that has the power to keep your fleet running at top performance while lowering greenhouse gas emissions compared to fossil diesel. Visit nestemy.com to learn more.